0: with the rest having partial or no air conditioning at all. Advocates say the temperatures often go past 120 degrees Fahrenheit inside Texas prisons in the summertime and have been responsible for hundreds of inmate deaths in recent years. Support this local newscast and this station now by going to kpft.org and becoming a member. Thanks for tuning in. For KPFT News, I'm Elise Ben. This
1: is KPFT Houston. America, welcome to Growing Up in America from Children at Risk here on KPFT. With me today, Claire Dutre. How are you doing, Claire? I'm good. How are you? Very good. Doctor Bob here as well, and we have another 60 minute program for uh, all of you fanatics of policy. Uh, we're going to talk, uh, we have a, a pretty good show, Claire. I'm we have excited a pretty
2: great it. show. Pretty
1: great, indeed. We are beginning a series of interviews with all of the mayoral candidates running for mayor in the city of Houston. And uh, we're real excited about that. Uh, Derek Bros is uh, the candidate that we're going to have on the air today in just a couple of minutes. We're excited about that. Uh, but we're hoping that over the next month or so, we really get uh, each of the candidates in here. And we get to hear what's going on. Also today, uh, Merritt Dr- Drury, a professor out of uh, Texas State University, going to be talking a little bit about nutrition. You've had Merit before. I don't think, was I on that show, uh, I Claire? do not think
2: you had the honor of being on that show, no. We we had her on before, and so I'm excited to continue the conversation. She's very wise.
1: Very good. Uh, we also have our data of the day today. The number is
2: $10 billion. Ten, finally, a big enough number. Yeah, Do you sorry. have a guess? They,
1: I'm, I'm going to guess uh, the number of kids in Texas in 10 years.
3: Okay.
2: I'm going to say it's the number of dollars that our Texas legislator will invest in schools during this special session.
1: Yeah, like not enough. That's for yeah. sure. Yeah, so. <laughs> not even close. Also on the program today, Naomi Fletcher, who's the Associate Director of Early Education Out of Children at Risk, She'll be talking about the high cost of uh, child care. Kim Coffrin is with us today also, Senior Director of Education at Children at Risk, and she's going to be talking a little bit about a big ballot initiative that will be on the ballot all across the state in November on property tax relief for child care centers, especially those that serve low-income kids. So it's a heck of a show. Claire Dutre along with Dr. Bob Sanborn. Uh, we're here to take you through this hour, and we promise to have a lively discussion on the children of Texas with experts on the quality of life for children from Children at Risk, the voice of Texas's children, a nonprofit organization dedicated to research, public policy, law, and collaborative action on behalf of Texas's youth. <laughs> All right, up first in our series on the mayoral candidates in Houston, Derek Bros is with us. Derek is a journalist, author, documentary filmmaker, entrepreneur, public speaker, and most importantly, an activist. Mr. Bros, thanks for being on the program today. Hey,
4: thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate the time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Mr. Bros. tell, tell us a little bit about your journey to deciding that you want to run for mayor because, uh, I mean, it's not an easy decision, right? And, and you're up against a lot of big hitters this time. So what, what, what are your thoughts around and around that in your journey?
4: Well, so I've been, as you mentioned, I've been an activist and a journalist here in Houston for the last 14 years. And, i spent a lot of time at City Hall. I've been going to city council meetings since 2010, 2011, around homelessness issues, water quality, Mm -hmm. environmental, police violence, you name it. I've been there trying to raise awareness, both as an individual, as a citizen, and as somebody who is also playing the role of a journalist. And in that time, I've had some great successes, met a lot of wonderful people. But I also came to realize that there are some major roadblocks to real lasting change in the city of Houston. Yeah. And the majority of them start with the mayor's office. And so after kind of going down that uh, that rabbit hole of learning more about the city and how this, the mayor's office works and the pay- power that the mayor has and, and working with various city council members. It led me to some of the conclusions, which I'm now bringing in as part of my platform for the mayor's office. And,
1: and and Derek, what is your hook? I mean, what is the thing that sort of makes you unique amongst all the other candidates that you think this is the thing? If this catches on, there's really a chance that I'll win.
4: I'm glad you asked that. What I believe makes me different from the other candidates is that. Uh, for one, I'm not a politician and really have no aspirations to be a politician. You know, I'm not looking to be a career politician, start with mayor and then go on from there. So I'm not part of the entrenched political class. And I'll be frank, the current two frontrunners, or at least those who are being crowned the frontrunners by yeah. the local media, Sheila Jackson Lee and John Whitmire, are deeply tied to the corporate Democratic Party and to uh, billionaire foundations and corporate money. And for myself, With my time in the community, I have an activist grassroots movement behind me. We're bringing together a coalition of people from across the political spectrum. Last night, I spoke to a group of Republicans here in Houston. The night before, I spoke to the West Houston Democrats. A couple days before that, I was at the Pride Forum. I'll be speaking to the Libertarians next weekend. We're building a coalition of people who are across the political spectrum, are looking for common sense solutions and who are sick of career politicians and city hall and looking for some real change. Claire?
2: Yeah. If you were elected, what are your top three priorities that you think the city should shift their focus on?
4: Okay. So first of all, again, this is born out of my experience as an activist and a journalist. The first main thing that I'm calling for, which is resonating across the board, is to uh, amend the city charter to take away the power of the mayor for those who are not aware Houston's mayoral position, not Sylvester Turner, but the position itself, is the strongest in the United States. Uh, not only in terms of we have a strong mayor form of government, that's not unusual. Other cities have that as well. But Houston, particularly, and the way it's set up, is very much geared to what I would consider to be somewhat of a local dictatorship. I mean, and where the mayor has ultimate power over setting the budget and determining how much money the city council members get, as well as setting the weekly agenda. And for anybody who's put in time, going down to city council to speak about issues you care about, you might've experienced waiting for hours on end because the way the city council agenda works, if you're not on the official agenda, but you want to call to speak about flooding in your neighborhood or something like that. Yeah. And you call in and you get your two or three minutes and you go downtown and you take off work and you write your little speech and you, you say your thing. If you're not on the official agenda, you will wait two to three to four hours. You'll be placed at the the end of the meeting. By that point, the mayor's gone. Half the council's gone. The ones who are there are not even paying attention. And it's a very disheartening, dissatisfying experience. And I've seen with working on those issues I mentioned, working with council members, I've had council members tell me, I'm sorry, Derek, but my hands are tied. We can't do anything. If the mayor says no, we can't get this through. We can't get this even on the agenda to discuss it, to potentially introduce a resolution, to have a vote or to make that real change that I think is, so important. And for me, this is core, changing this is core to getting real change, regardless of whatever other people's um, core issues are. If we don't change this, it doesn't matter how great of council members we elect. This will not change. We will not be able to push through the things that I think need to get done. So I'm running on that largely. And I want to mention that you'll hear other count- other candidates mentioning this now because they are starting to realize that this is uh, something people want from across the political spectrum. But Their solution is elect me, and I promise I'll use that power in the best way possible, whereas I'm the only candidate that's running with the intention to reduce my own power and give that back to the city council to amend the city charter so that if one-fifth of the city council, about three members, says that their constituents are calling them for a particular topic, that it would automatically be placed on the agenda. The mayor couldn't prevent that. And then we could have further discussion. People could come into city council, their voices would be heard. And ideally, yeah. if people are engaged, that would lead to real change. So that's really the core. And there's other things, you know, like, I'm into the environment, food inequality that I'm happy to talk about. But that is really the core plank that we're running on.
2: Yeah, speaking of environment and just overall quality of life, in your plot for you have a couple of things. One, on community gardens and expanding the access to organic food in Houston's Fifth Ward, if you can speak on that. And then also your plan for Houston's animals.
4: Yes, thank you for that. So I've been involved in Houston's community garden, urban farm scene, I guess you could say, since 2011, 2012. I used to work at a no longer existing community farm. Unfortunately, it's been replaced by uh, some of the gentrification going on in that area. But it was called the Last Organic Outpost. And it was a two-acre farm in the Fifth Ward of Houston where there's, you know, it's considered a food desert. There's no grocery stores nearby. There's dollar stores and gas stations and and things of that sort. And there were so many amazing people involved in that. We brought music. We brought activism. We brought, most importantly, good, clean, organic food to a neighborhood that never had it. We started working with the local neighbors and, and you would see neighbors just walking into the garden and picking the greens that they wanted and taking them home. And it was such a, an empowering experience, such a beautiful experience. And so I spent a lot of my time as an activist uh, organizing things like we did a garden crawl a few years ago, encouraging people to bike to the different gardens around the inner loop. And I have a lot of experience in this. I've also got uh, certified as a permaculture teacher in 2020 uh, and this is really core to what I want to bring to the table. In my view, there are a lot of common sense solutions, especially as it pertains to the environment that are being completely ignored in the city of Houston. And I don't, you know, want to speculate as to why they're being ignored. Maybe it's just a lack of information, but ideas like permaculture, which are really born out of indigenous farming methods from around the world can do so much for our city. And so I want to bring those to the table. I have on, on, contact right now, ready to call and ready to bring them to Houston, permaculture experts from around the world who would love to reimagine the city and envision how we could bring in more native plants and uh, industrial hemp, which is now legal in Texas, to help with flooding and to help with erosion. And as far as the community gardens idea I have, we want to, we've already identified a number of vacant lots that are uh, owned by the city of Houston around uh, different neighborhoods. And we want to, if I was to come in as mayor, to work with the permitting department to make it as cheap as possible, I'm imagining permits for neighborhoods that are interested in this program for as little as a dollar, giving them access to these lots that are either just sitting there and they're turning into dumping grounds or they're used for crime and redirecting some, some resources from some other wasteful areas that I see and creating something like a non-GMO seed distribution program, encouraging more community gardens and urban farms, because I think it's important for yeah. us to have more localized food production and food distribution um as we've seen the last couple years especially during covid there was more people in texas than there have been um in decades having to go to food pantries and and to things like that so we can see the value and the importance of having uh local food production
1: mr bros i want to i want to direct uh your questions to some some around children in houston um one of the things that we see in Houston is that uh, half of all the children in our city are children of immigrants or immigrants themselves. Well, what might you do differently in terms of creating a climate uh, that sort of counters what we're seeing from the state around immigration uh, and specifically around immigrant kids?
4: That's a great question. You know, it's unfortunate some of the the rhetoric that is used in, in our great state here when it comes to immigrants and how that might impact uh, the youth is something that we need to talk about. You know, I am a part of and connected with various communities in Houston that are uh, immigrant communities, some who are undocumented and some who are documented. And I do think this is uh, a part of the conversation that is completely ignored, especially not even in terms of just local politics, but yeah. just the, the community conversation uh, and a lot of lip service is paid to, to this idea with, uh, with other politicians in terms of putting city documents in different languages. I think we can do better than that. My, my kind of vision is that we have more outreach, more of a direct line to, uh, city hall for individuals like that. Because again, across the board, I see that Houstonians of all backgrounds, all persuasions, all stripes are, their voices are being ignored. If you're not in that, sort of elite circle at City Hall and connected to those in power, then your concerns are probably not going to be uh, heard very often, unless there's some political, you know, convenient reason to do so. So I would like to uh, open up the lines of communication to individual immigrant families uh, and those, their kids specifically, to hear what are the issues that are facing them. I mean, I do think, just from my own experience, I can say I know that part of the challenge of coming in as an immigrant family, and especially if you're coming in as a child who doesn't speak English very well or at all, is the integration process. And I know there's some some great efforts being made in different Houston schools, and teachers do their best. But I've heard time and time again from friends, as well as, you know, my own partner, who is a first generation born in the U.S. and had to learn English along with Spanish, that a lot of times the struggles you have are just communicating your needs and communicating, uh, you know, what how, how to get things done, how to be, you know, how to get integrated. And there's, the, I think, a lot of, a lot more work that could be done in that yeah. area to creating programs and just making the effort to make those who are coming in who might not have the language skills or just the know-how to make that process as, as simple as possible. I think that could go a long way to them getting to know what are the issues that are really affecting your community and how can we work with you.
1: I want to ask you another question, and then I want to go to our fun five questions, which we want to ask of all the mayoral candidates. Uh, uh, Derek, when when we talk about schools in the state of Texas, K-12 through schools, and to a certain extent, early education, we hear in Houston from a lot of mayoral candidates, and having interviewed mayoral candidates over the years, People like to say, well, it's they're, they're ISDs, so they're separate from what we do. But what I notice is that in Houston, we say that a lot, but in Dallas, in San Antonio, in Austin, there's a vibrant debate, even during mayoral races, around our schools and what should be done with our schools. When you think about... You know, the 20-odd school districts that fall inside the Houston city limits, uh, and you think about public education in, in our city, what are the things that as a mayor you would want to see happen and that you would sort of use that bully pulpit to see happen? Well, you're
4: you're correct that. I- you know, legally, technically, the mayor is not in control of the schools. But also, as you said there, you have the bully pulpit, you have the soapbox, and you can definitely be an advocate for uh, for the youth and for those in Houston's different school districts. And I'll also add that I, I just probably like the listeners here, I do not support the taking over of HISD yeah. by uh, Texas. I definitely think that's a step in the wrong direction. Obviously, there's some things that need to be um, done. There are some needs that are not being met. But again, I I don't see I I don't see much effort being made to actually listen to the people uh, and what their concerns are. I have nieces and nephews in Houston area schools, and I very much care about the direction those schools are going. And you know what I've been trying to do uh, as a as a candidate and as a person. And and the reason I emphasize that is because I'm in this race. I'm here. I'm serious. I'm going to be in the on the on the ballot and running to win this Mayoral race. But I'm also just an activist. I'm a human being, and so outside of the political race. I care about these issues, and I want to work with people who do. And the great thing about the race, though, is I get to meet other people who are working in the education department, people who are on school boards, people who have uh, previously worked in education or teachers, and and get to learn from them and and speak to them. Because I can't speak as a uh, professional teacher. I can't speak as a principal or somebody who's spending a lot of time with these students. But I can speak as a former student of Houston Area Schools and as somebody who struggled in those schools and who probably wouldn't have made it through without some really helpful, really supportive teachers that just, you know, helped me through some tough times so I could get graduated high school and go on with my life and do the things I'm doing now. Well, where did you go to high school, I Derek? To school uh, I went I actually I went to high school out in Katy. I went to Houston school up until about eleven years old in HISD, and then I moved to my family moved me to Katy. And I got back to the city as fast as I could. But if it wasn't for some of those teachers, I, uh, sure. I wouldn't, be, wouldn't have been able to make it through. And I really just, the reason I bring that up is because I feel like, yes, the mayor can't go in there and change anything in HISD. But the mayor could go in there and could become a friend to various school districts Absolutely. and various schools and teachers and make those relationships clear. Make it clear that the city that the city has an open door. If you want to come speak to my office and you have concerns about your students, even though it's not technically under my purview, come speak to me. Let's talk about it. And then let's see how we can advocate for those issues that you think need to be heard and that are currently not yeah. being heard.
1: Derek, let's ask you a couple of these are super brief questions just to get a better idea of who you are. Uh, when you were a, a little kid in Houston before you moved to Katy, what did you want to be when you grew up?
4: I wanted to be, I definitely was interested in science, science as a young kid. Uh-huh. And uh, that. That's still an interest of mine, not my occupation by any means, but I I definitely didn't foresee myself going into journalism or any of this. But I think science was always a a really uh, interesting aspect, especially animal science, just relating to the earth and animals. Awesome.
2: Our next question is, what is your favorite or what was your favorite book to read or to be read as a child?
4: That's great. There's this awesome book that I still have on my shelf that I've saved the original copy from when I was a kid. It's called the Houdini box because I was also into magic.
2: <laughs> <laughs> awesome.
1: You are gonna need some magic to be mayor though, Derek, right? I think that's the <laughs> thing, you know, it's a, well, it's a-, a- <laughs> awesome.
2: Our next question is in the movie of your life, what actor would play you?
4: Oh, wow. That's a great question. Who is going to play me in my biopic? Well, hopefully somebody, uh, who can, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, go, I'll go with somebody like a classic actor like Robert De Niro or someone like that. Maybe a little too older, but him in his prime, <laughs> he could play me.
1: <laughs> and then our final question is, uh, what's your favorite restaurant here in Houston?
4: Well, I'm very partial to, like many Houston, Houstonians, to breakfast tacos. And I love the Arcos and the East End. Um, I also love, you know, some of our healthier local restaurants like uh, Bella Green and local foods. You know, yeah. I definitely love all the food that is available to us here.
1: Yeah, very good. Derek Bros is one of the candidates for mayor here in the city of Houston. And uh, thank you, Derek, very, very much for being our initial candidate as we do this series on all of the mayoral candidates uh, running for mayor here in Houston. Thank you, Derek, very much.
4: Thank you for making the effort to talk to the candidates. I'll talk to you all soon. All right. Take care.
1: You're listening to Growing Up in America on KPFT. It's uh, Claire Dutre and Dr. Bob here with you. And coming up next, we have uh, Professor Merritt Drury from uh, Texas State University talking a little bit about nutrition. We'll take a break. Take me on, Come on take oh, all right. Um, listening to KPFT. Hey, what'd you think about the, about old Derek running for mayor, huh?
2: He's awesome. I'm excited to hear from everyone, and it's just very cool to be civically engaged.
1: It's nice to hear from all the candidates, because yeah. you know what?
2: You no know, matter how much of a chance they have, there's
1: some good ideas, right, under each of them. I know. And Hearing passion. anyone
2: passion. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was going to say. It it's pretty me excited. great.
1: And he's very passionate, and I loved how he was... So detail-oriented, like on community gardens, there's there's good ideas there. So that's very good. Uh, Up next is Merritt Drury. Merritt is uh, an assistant professor of animal science at Texas State University. Professor Drury, how are you doing today?
3: Hi, thanks for having me. I'm doing well. How are y'all?
1: We're doing pretty well. We're doing pretty well. Um, So we're talking a little bit about childhood nutrition. And uh, talk a little bit about, and, and I know you wanted to talk a little bit about Uh, protein and meat. And so the question that came to mind is when you are advising families of which there are many that are vegetarian these days, what's the best way for uh, families to sort of deal with being in a state like Texas where it seems like it's all meat all the time? Uh,
3: Sure. And let me just put a disclaimer out there that I'm not a dietitian so I don't do like clinical nutrition right. work right we always have to have our disclaimer when talking about sure, you know medicine or diet or lifestyle because I'm definitely not a clinician not a registered dietitian um, but you are a I professor
1: do. of animal science and you like being on the air with us so you're at, you've got a I, head start <laughs>
3: yeah. I do I do and uh, my PhD is in human nutrition um, so when I, you know, we can just talk about me and my family. Um, my yeah. brother has um, two kids that are six and eight. Shout out to my nephews. And when we talk about their nutrition needs, we are in a really meat-dense state. Yeah. And I don't think there there's nothing wrong with incorporating meat in your diet as long as we are respecting, um, you know, normal serving sizes. And we are after those lean cuts of meat, not really fatty things like, um, you know, some of our brisket cuts or some of our like ground chucks. So, um, meat can definitely be incorporated in a very healthy way in your diet.
2: Yeah, that's awesome. Can you talk a little bit about your background and how you came to where you are today with animal science?
3: Yeah, of course. Um, I, you know, always had an interest in animals, in food and in health and nutrition. I originally wanted to be a veterinarian, but somewhere in my undergraduate career, I decided, oh, research and nutrition's more for me. So <laughs> exciting. I, uh, yeah, I, I did my uh, master's in a ruminant nutrition lab. And when we talk about ruminants, We're talking about animals that have a four compartment stomach, like, you know, cows, sheep, goats, deer. (laughs) Um, So that was my specialty. And then I thought, you know, if I really want to promote beef consumption or make sure that beef consumption is healthy, I need to get a PhD in human nutrition. So that's what I did in, um, for my PhD. I actually worked with pregnant women and what they consumed during pregnancy and how it impacted the autonomic nervous system of their, of their babies. Hmm.
1: Wow. Uh, Professor cool. Drury, one of the producers of our show, Rebecca, she said, I, I really want you to ask Professor Drury about... Uh, E. coli hamburgers hot dogs you know so there's obviously people are cooking out these days and is there a danger uh if if some of this meat is not cooked well or is there a danger of you know if the if the meat is not so good I mean do we hear of many cases of uh people dying from E. coli from cookouts at home
3: um you know I I think that the USDA and just Food safety awareness is pretty good mm. in our country. I mean, of course, there's always foodborne illnesses and transmission. And I I don't think that these cases are usually, you know, fatal. I, I definitely know we can have an upset tummy or something like that with our with our children. But um Yes, there's always a risk, whether we're eating meat, whether we're eating vegetables that we haven't cleaned and have been contaminated from something. So always a risk. You know, when we're grilling, when we're cooking, we use a meat thermometer um, to make sure we're cooking to the right doneness. But uh, always a risk. You know, for the 4th of July, I follow USDA Gov on Instagram. I recommend that to everybody they're wonderful, and they put out a bunch of you know food safety um, foodborne illness uh, tips and tricks because they knew a lot of people would be grilling
1: do do you think there's a an over fear of you know uh, people not cooking their hamburgers well enough or their pork chops. Well, it seems to me, you know, I do a lot of cooking, uh, merit. And I find that, uh, there are still a lot of people that are like, Oh no, you can't do a medium rare hamburger. And this is meat that I'm buying the same day as I'm cooking it. And I've never found it there to be a problem.
3: Right. No, I'm, I mean, I'm like a rare girl myself. Mm -hmm. I won't lie. Um, but you know, the restaurants are like, we're not going to cook it rare. Um, you know, I, I definitely think that <laughs> um, I, I I know that the science is there that to uh, we, we can't eliminate the bacteria, but to reduce it to a level that supposedly wouldn't be pathogenic, we have to hit this in this doneness temperature. So there's always going to be a risk. Right. And at higher doneness temperatures, we have a lower, lower, lower risk. So, um I don't know if it's like an over fear. I just think we have to, you know, weigh our weigh weigh the risk versus the outcome um, and, you know, kind of gamble with what bacteria is going to be there. But, you know, we could talk about raw milk versus pasteurized milk as well with that. You yeah. know, I only drink pasteurized milk because I know what is in raw milk. I know about the pathogenicity. And I, you know, don't want to run that risk of getting, getting sick. Yeah. Professor Drury, pivoting a
2: little bit before we run out of time, because we want to talk about representation in agriculture and nutrition careers and just in the classroom. What is the need or lack of right now Hispanic and black voices in these career pathways?
3: Yeah, I'm really glad you asked about that. A lot of my work here at the university, I do work on nutrition, I work on you know, beef cattle production, but what I really am interested in is increasing diversity in agriculture and nutrition. And if we look at the data, we can see for the general population what the Hispanic and black representation is, so how many Hispanic and black people there are in the US, there are less in agriculture and nutrition especially when we get into, you know, master's degrees and PhDs and in the workforce. And then when we look at intersectionality, we're looking at women who are black or, you know, Hispanic or Latina. There are even less. So, so we really, you know, agriculture has been, and I keep pivoting back to agriculture because that is nutrition. We are yeah. producing food to feed the world, you know, um, Agriculture has been historically white, masculine-dominated, and uh, we we really need to promote promote the diversity. Um, so I try to promote and try to incentivize you know these um, the, these different underrepresented demographics to get into agriculture, um, and that we have really great STEM tech savvy career options you know we think of agriculture and we think oh you're out in the field and you're digging and it's dirty and it's not it's not stem but ag is absolutely stem and so is nutrition Mm. and so i i just hope that you know we start getting more diversity into these degrees and careers
1: there's a little show on uh HBO or max. So, and I'm trying to remember some hair somewhere, somehow. And it's about the university of Manhattan, Kansas. And one of the, one of the characters in the show is sort of, uh, um, uh, uh, a lesbian. Who's the, uh, uh, She's a professor of agriculture. It's just a fantastic show. I don't know if, uh, anyway, you talk about sort of representation and how (laughs) this is, and it just is, uh, it it brings to mind that show. Uh, Final question, Merritt. you know, are you a uh, a, a filet or a ribeye sort of person? Which which way do you go on that?
3: I respect my serving sizes, uh, Dr. Bob, as I think we (laughs) talked about, so... You know, do I want a ten ounce ribeye or a three to four ounce filet? I'm gonna go filet. I'm with you on (laughs) filet. Oh, see,
1: this is what this is my trick now. Is that I do these ribeyes, but I slice them now, so people can just take one or two strips, right? So. portion control but you get the good taste (laughs) so anyway professor uh, Meriduri, great
3: great strategy
1: (laughs) (laughs) professor Meriduri is uh, a associate professor out of of animal science out of texas state university mara thank you very very much for being on the program again we hope you have you back again
3: okay thanks y'all all All right take care bye-bye
1: you're listening to growing up in america kpft Time for our date of the day here on Growing Up in America. Dr. Bob here with Claire Dutre. Claire, that was good, right? A little uh, agriculture that science. That was.
2: And I actually, we have Layla on the line, thinks she would agree on ribeye. Am I right, Layla? Oh,
0: um, <laughs> I, I would say it, it depends. It depends. I, there, okay. is, there is a time <laughs> and place for both. mm
1: mm-hmm there's never a time for filet in my book
2: i mean (laughs) i'm uh, trying to help him out because everyone else is team filet oh man so you know uh, i
0: can't help it a a tenderloin i mean dr bob come on
2: (laughs) but it was a good conversation all
1: around (laughs) yeah i I just always go for more flavor Uh, i wanted to uh ask you uh Layla, the the number today ten billion, and, I, and at the top of the hour, I thought it was ten million, and I was thinking a mm. you know, number of kids, but it's ten billion, uh, and I'm stumped on this one. Layla, tell us what is ten billion?
0: Ten billion. So it's ten billion dollars. Mm. Um, we have some recent data that suggests that Texas is losing up to ten billion dollars a year because of child care disruptions to the workforce. Oh wow! Ten billion. Yeah, for what?
1: Yeah. So, what is is it? Is it just that people aren't, aren't out there earning their income? They're not able to go to work. All of these things because they can't find a good place to to drop their kids off for childcare. Is that sort of the the gist of it, Layla?
0: Yeah. I mean, exactly. Either childcare is so expensive that people can't afford to work because oftentimes you would earn less than the cost of childcare, um, or childcare is not available in your area. There's no seats. So oftentimes, female caretakers, mothers, are staying home to care for their children and as a result are not able to equitably participate in the workforce.
2: And has it been proven that access to this affordable child care significantly improves this $10 billion loss?
0: Yes, absolutely. We do have data to support that having high-quality child care and access to it has been shown to increase workforce participation and especially for low-income moms. Yeah, it feels
2: like all roads, well, not all roads, but most roads lead back to childcare.
0: Yeah, and
1: are there examples, and you may not know this off the top, Layla, and and probably our next couple of guests will know, but are there states where they have sort of seen this as a bigger deal than we have in Texas? I mean, obviously, we have a lot of kids here, second highest number of kids in the country. We're the second youngest state in the country uh so we see this as a problem but are are there examples around the country where we could say hey they're doing a pretty good job with this
0: yeah i mean there's been there's been another a number of examples i don't have super recent data so i'm hesitant to point to anyone in particular um but there have been states or cities that have piloted universal pre-k and they've had really good results i mean of course, when it comes to low-income children, it's really important to bridge achievement gaps that kids have high-quality early learning opportunities, yeah. but then for parents, it's so important, you know, when we're talking about going to four-day school weeks in some districts, I mean, the learning loss for kids is huge, but also the problem for parents in securing child care is huge, you know, that one extra day could cause some major loss in income.
1: Yeah, very yeah. good. We've been talking with Layla Mazzali. Layla is the director of the Center for Social Measurement and Evaluation at Children at Risk, and our Data of the Day expert each and every week. and And Layla, you're out in California. Is it getting hot yet out there?
0: It okay. Well, relative to Texas, I would say no, but no. it is getting very it's hot Winter relative
2: dinner. to Texas. Yeah, it's,
1: it's, <laughs> it's very. It's, it's a spring day. The 90s. <laughs> oh, it's oh. See, the 90s in LA is hot, though, isn't it?
2: But is there humidity?
0: It is.
1: Yeah,
2: no, is,
0: it's is, it's bone dry. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's uh, you know this is Mediterranean climate. I mean, you, you literally live in the best climate in the world, don't you, Leila? I mean, that and the south of France where you vacation are like the two places.
0: <laughs> I mean, I I would say that you know the south of France in August is a pretty miserable place too if you're not you know immediately next to water. Um, but yeah, it's not bad and it's changing, of course, like everywhere. But I can't say that I can complain. I see the sun most days, and most days is outdoor friendly temperatures so i'm i'm not mad at it it almost justifies the cost of living Uh,
1: thank you layla very much and thanks for being on growing up in america on kpft pacifico growing up in America. Claire, I I love Rico in the production booth because whenever the music comes on he's just like rocking you know i don't get to see that view whether it's beyonce or whether it's the beatles (laughs) well
2: you weren't here last week we got house music it was a dj booth in the in the store
1: well it was so great it's so great to have Rico here with us on the line though with us is our good buddy and friend of the program naomi fletcher who is the associate director of early childhood education at children at risk naomi how are you doing and how's life in the country
5: I'm doing well,
1: and life in the country is fantastic. Doesn't do much better than this. <laughs> so, no complaints. Naomi is live from Marble Falls, so uh, <laughs> we're excited to have you here. Naomi, we want to talk a little bit about, this is one of your areas of specialty, is, and we, talked a, we touched on it with Layla, is this idea of rising costs in early education. And is this something, you know, as our population gets bigger and as our state – spends a little bit more but certainly not near enough because almost all the money that our state spends comes from the federal government but is there a way that this is going to change over time
5: i mean that's what we're hopeful for but there's going to have to be
1: an investment from
5: somewhere right now parents primarily fund the cost of child care or a scholarship program has to step in and so In order for that charge, that cost to parents to change and the cost to providers to change, um, somebody's going to have to give some more money to the system. Right now, providers are having an increase in cost, primarily because wages need to go up in order to maintain their employees. Um, And who do they pass that cost off to? Mm -hmm. Right now, they don't have anyone really.
2: Yeah, we're going to talk to Kim shortly after about the ballot initiative to help believe some of that. But what are some barriers? Because it seems like a no brainer to invest in a lot of our state, including child care. So what are some barriers that these centers have to jump through and how much will it take for the state to fully invest and help them out? Could you repeat the question? I can't. I know I say a lot in one sentence. What are why? Why is it not happening? Where are the barriers that the, both the providers and the state are creating to lock in this investment? I
5: mean, I don't know that there's a direct answer for that. So, with the child care relief dollars, we saw an invest you know some progress in this direction. Um, child care pro- programs were able to do maintenance that they needed. They were able to provide incentives to their employees they were able to keep their classrooms open to receive children um but once that goes away that came from the federal government the question is where is that next level of funding going to come from and right now there's not an answer
1: do do you think our state's getting to the point naomi where Uh, At some point when the federal government offers more money for child care, we're not going to fight the federal government on it. And we're going to say we need to. I mean, is our state going to get to that point or is this always going to be? I mean, it seems like it's less of a political issue than it used to be, but it's still too much of one, isn't it?
5: It is. And I think the state of Texas will have to get creative, right? We're seeing progress in states like New Mexico and Colorado, where they have other revenue streams that they can pull from with. From within their state budgets, so Texas is going to have to come up with that revenue stream as well. Like, where where can we pull money from, or what can we create a tax on, or some kind of revenue stream that will allow us to put more into our child care system?
2: Yeah, thinking of what has child care centers had to do to cut costs, and how can they pay their workers <laughs> a living wage?
5: Um. I mean, shared services is one example of how providers are cutting costs, being able to buy in bulk or leverage some of that cost to another organization because they're participating in group fashion is one way, but they've been able to do it. But for the most part, there's not a way to cut the cost, like the cost of taking care of children continues to rise. And so unless there's something done differently, providers are going to continue to ask the question, where do we get this money from without being able to charge parents more?
1: Naomi, I'll ask you one last question before we take a break, and we allow you to go uh, be with Nyla a little bit. I hear her calling. I hear her <laughs> she calling. She wants to be on the you know, radio <laughs> so bad. So she's yeah. She, she heard Doctor Bob, and she's like, "Where is he? I want to see him." So <laughs> she, uh, there, uh, things she to wants say. to be in the, in the
0: public She does.
1: <laughs> she does. Uh, but when we look at high quality early education in the state of Texas, uh, what percentage? You know. One of the things we know, right, is that if you're coming from a low-income family, uh, one of the best ways to break that cycle of poverty is to go to high-quality early education. What percentage of low-income families uh, have access to high-quality early education in the state of Texas, would you say, Naomi?
5: It varies throughout the region, but right now throughout the state, we're sitting at about
1: 55%. So you think 55% of all parents have access to Texas rising star, four stars, or you know, super high quality, or is it just pretty high quality?
5: Um, just quality. It just
1: quality. Cl- <laughs> <laughs> and, and talk about high quality, though. I mean, uh, four stars and above. And and one of the things that we notice right when we talk to national experts is that they'll often say uh, there's much better. There are some high quality childcare places around the country. Texas doesn't seem to have them. Uh, if we're going to get four stars and above, how many? what percentage of our kids do you think have access right now?
5: Um, this is not an exact number, but I would say probably 10 to 15%. Yeah. Um, when you're looking at higher quality, you're looking at teacher credentialing, you're looking at uh, years of experience, the curriculum available, and right now I just don't think we're doing a yeah. good job in that area. Yeah.
1: Naomi Fletcher is the Associate Director for Early Childhood Education at Children at Risk. Naomi, take care of Nyla. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks for having me. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to Growing Up in America with Claire and Dr. Bob.
4: Deep in
3: the heart of Texas, the prairie sky is wide and high. Deep in the heart of Texas, the coyotes wail along the trail. Deep in the heart
4: of Texas. The rabbits rush around the brush deep in the heart of Texas.
2: We are on our last but not least guest, Kim Coffin, our very own back, our senior director of education, to talk a little bit more about that ballot initiative, but also just our general legislative debrief upcoming. Kim, how are you?
6: Good afternoon. How are you? Guys, I can't say ladies this week. No, you cannot.
1: You cannot say that. (laughs) You could, I guess. I I know. I'm actually the
2: only lady in studio today, so you could Uh, say way All right. Way way to represent, Claire. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. But we're excited to talk. Can you, I know we spoke a little bit about it last week, but we really want to make sure the city of Houston listens and gets out there and votes in November. But talk a little bit about the ballot initiative once more.
6: Yes, so we, uh, the legislative passed a, uh, property tax bill. They passed a couple now, because, uh, if you were following the events mm. of last week, but back in the regular session, they passed a property tax bill that would give, uh, local tax authorities abilities to give child care programs, uh, 50 to 100% tax relief on their property taxes, um, which would really help in, um, lower the cost for families as well as hopefully increase the compensation for our educator, for our early child workforce.
1: And you think this will have a big impact, uh, Kim? When you think about these this property tax reduction, is this going to really help the childcare situation in Texas?
6: Yeah, I think you know there's some there's some caveats because you know it's, yeah. it's Texas, so you have to so you have to serve 20 percent of your enrollment it has to be low income kids through the Texas Workforce Commission, um, but for those for those programs that can. can um, Apply for it and qualify for it, I think it's going to make a huge difference in their bottom line and a great cost savings for them to really be able to refund some of those expenses into their families and into their their workforce
1: tomorrow morning kim i uh, 'm um, going to be leading a press conference uh, with people from around the state. Uh, and s- followed by a summit, right, on uh, uh, our state legislature and debriefing it in regards to its impact on kids. When you think about this ballot initiative, but more importantly about some of the other pieces of legislation around early education and daycare, uh, what grade would you give our state legislature just on on the early education side?
6: Oh,
1: Oh, you didn't want to That's give a grade. I can tell. <laughs> Kim, Kim is like, "Oh no, I'm not. I'm a satisfactory, unsatisfactory teacher, not a grading teacher." Pass fail. I would probably
6: give them. I would, you know, if we're looking at this session, I think I would give them a C. Wow. Um, we had an oppor- We had an opportunity to invest. We have a you know a 33 billion dollar surplus. Yeah. And we did not take that opportunity to really invest into childcare like we could have. Um, it's a passing grade because they are starting to pay attention. They are starting to make the you know recognize that that um, this is something that's not going away. They haven't completely committed that this is their role to help fix for families. Mm. Um, and so I think that's where we have to continue this education. And this ballot initiative is going to be one piece of that pie. This ballot initiative is not going to fix the early childhood system, right. um, but um, it's one one piece um, you know one step up the ladder to to that the ultimate fix. So, um, so yeah, I'll, I'll stick
1: with my C. Wow. You know, I, I almost would give, I don't know when you just think about the surplus and the, the big chance that we, you know, uh, you know, Claire's going to get uh, her rent is not going to be any cheaper on her apartment oh, yeah, after this property that. tax relief. Right, and for the majority right. of Texans, they're not going to see any of the savings. And if they do see it, it's an average of six to eight hundred dollars. When here is this opportunity of a generation to invest in public schools or early education or the fight against poverty. I mean, so many opportunities. It's if it's not a fail, it's certainly a D minus in my book, you know, overall. <laughs>
6: when yeah when you look at just the budget piece i would i would agree with you it, they they missed the mark they missed the opportunity to really do like you know currently we don't even have Teacher pay raises for our uh, K twelve teachers. the Yeah. You know, in this in this mix, you know, there there's, there is talk of a special session coming up in the fall that may address that. But um, but yeah, you know, they they we, a lot of Texans were left empty handed with this thirty three billion dollars surplus.
1: And how many reports did just us at Children's Risk put out talking about pandemic learning loss? And it's almost Ugh. like the minute the pandemic is over, it's like we're moving on. You know, no learning yep. loss here in Texas. You know, it's just uh, ridiculous.
6: Yeah well and and even the child care piece of things we saw this influx of federal dollars come into the state um because of the, of covid and it worked it helped providers stay afloat it helped them stay in business but the, the decrease we saw at the beginning of the pandemic corrected itself. Um, but that those funds are running running out and, you know, we're very worried that 2024 is going to be another, um, the bottom's going to drop out again. Um, so, again, we missed, we missed the opportunity and missed the mark.
2: Yeah, well, even thinking of just sitting on that money and the first thing you would think to do is invest in the workforce to keep the workforce. So it was mm. it was not a win for me. I would agree on a lower grade from a well, what's 12 first,
1: grade? Your, K-12 What's your grade? Give us your K-12. What's your grade for K-12? (laughs)
2: um uh i i have hope that maybe they'll pull it together oh yeah Uh, you don't
1: base your grades on hope as a teacher you know this
2: uh actually (laughs) i could rebuttal that but the
6: final test isn't done yet correct correct it's just a benchmark it's just a benchmark
2: but at the first benchmark uh i would definitely give it a a d Ah. c minus i um do think there should have been a lot more investment in k-12 and then on the other hand there was a lot of pain points in k-12 with um what did and didn't pass but in the conversations that were held to priority it was not necessarily it was a repeat of the critical race theory conversations um this, this bands, is what happens when you
1: work with friendly activists like Kim and Claire. <laughs> you know, they don't want to give a bad grade. They want to be everyone's friend. They're activists. Yes, don't get me wrong. They're activists, but they're friendly well, activists.
2: Well, teachers teach everyone. So it's talking to the student whose paper, it's not there, and it's kind of uh, harmful, but it could be better, and I see I see room for improvement. Oh, look at that. Look um, at that. But Kim, thinking of tomorrow, giving a, almost a sneak peek, even though... Everyone can go look and read every bill that came through this session. What are some wins and pain points specifically in ECE? You can pick just one.
1: Early education, yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah in early childhood. Yeah, you know, for
6: for the early childhood piece, I think the, the missing the funding is another piece it is the biggest pain point that we didn't take that opportunity. You know, granted they invest zero dollars in, in in the system now. So the the biggest, the hardest change is getting them to invest, and then it's getting them to increase. Um, so I th- so that's the biggest pain point. You know, I think the other the, the, the spotlight is the property tax. Um, uh, the other spotlight is the fact that we were able, to, um, they were able to pass a bill that codified some some uh, one longstanding program that helps scholarships for um, early childhood educators to go back to school. Um, so that's now. Codified in statute, which is great, um, as well as a commitment to how to, how to continue to, to fight and improve our pre-K partnerships, which are partnerships between public schools and child care centers to make sure we're giving families true choice. Um, and so they codified that department as well. So that, so those are two good things, commitments that, that we are glad to see that are, that are currently in existence that aren't going to go away. Um, so that, that was a good, good thing for them.
1: Kim, when we look around the state, um, you know, we look here in Houston, and we see some pretty nice uh, early childhood pl- uh, opportunities. And we see a lot of people that are like, "Where, where can I go for good childhood education?" Is is there a community in the state of Texas that you think has embraced uh, sort of the challenge around early childhood uh, and has maybe done a better job?
6: You know, I think there is, I think that is. A- that we need to continue having those local conversations because different local municipalities have, have approached it in different ways. You know, mm-hmm. years ago, San Antonio, uh, passed the, the, t- the prop, or not the, the pre-K for SA, yeah. the sales tax, um, Benefit, um, you know, so they're they ahead of the game when it comes yeah. to, you know, thinking as a community of how they solve it. Um, but you know, a lot of the other Metroplexes are, um, are having those same conversations, not necessarily around, uh, um, a tax initiative, um, but just how do they support? Um, and then we've got communities like El Paso and Midland Odessa who are, businesses are thriving and are coming in and they're starting to have this local com- conversation about how do they build the infrastructure to support these big businesses coming in and child care is part of that infrastructure conversation
1: and someone told me that there might be a ballot initiative in austin to try to do a little bit more there in terms of ending childcare deserts and quality of uh, early education maybe in 24 is that something you're hearing as well
6: I we are still learning to figure out what's going to happen. So I think that's I think that's the conversations are just starting to figure out what what all communities can do and where where are those opportunities. You know, all the different sales tax laws and property tax laws and what they all can do. So I think those are all things that different communities have to, to explore.
1: Well, it's interesting, right? Because when you think about the number of kids that are in Houston and Dallas-Fort Worth and Austin and San Antonio. I mean, that is indeed the majority of our kids. And those communities themselves could really take action and decide, you know, the state is not acting quickly enough, we're going to take action, you know, provided that the state doesn't try to stop them, right, which has been sort of the latest thing, the state trying to stop local communities from doing some of these proactive things, but when it comes to taking care of families, this is something that we should be trying, you know, and as we interview all the mayoral candidates uh, here in Houston, we probably should be asking them about some of this, Childcare. these early child care uh, initiatives as well and whether we as a city can do more of this. And uh, it's interesting to see it around the state, though, isn't
6: it? Yeah, it really is, and especially with this property tax initiative, this ballot initiative in November. You know, If it passes in November, that it's still going to be a local choice. It's still yeah. going to be local authorities have the, the choice and then what percentage of that property tax benefit are they going to give Um, those child care providers and so that's it's still going to be a local local conversation that's going to have to have so as we as city council members get elected as mayors get elected as uh, county commissioners and judges all get elected um, you know asking about child care asking about the early you know that birthday five supports for young families should be at the top of the list
1: yeah very good so in our last minute is there a question that we've never asked kim in terms of a final five that we could do
2: I, I have one in mind, but now that you're making it the only question, it's quite boring. No no so go ahead. Change I'll, it. I'll come up with another <laughs> one. Okay. What what was your favorite cereal growing up?
1: Oh favorite cereal that's a
2: good oh, question. That. I like that one. Okay. Favorite cereal in cereal and
6: still my sin cereal is Lucky Charms. Lucky that Charms That is a good one. Yep. And they sell the marshmallows. Yep,
2: they're magically oh,
1: delicious. Yep.
2: Mm-hmm.
6: They they're magically delicious. Those wow. dry marshmallows and milk, they're just something oh, dangerous okay.
1: about those. Did, did you have a favorite
6: cereal,
2: Claire? <laughs> um, uh, I really liked Oreos before the rebrand. Oh,
1: you are very young, yeah. you know, <laughs> yes, you are very yes, young. Yes. We had nothing like that when I was growing up, or s'mores up.
2: cereal, which is it comes stale. S'mores so, wh-
1: when we can afford it, and cereal, you know, is relatively inexpensive. And so, growing up, we couldn't really afford a lot of cereal, but when we could. I was a big Captain Crunch fan. I, if I could one. get Captain, Captain Crunch, Crunch it, and the sweetness of that milk.
2: Oh, you after. could taste sugar yes. grains oh, in yeah. that cereal. <laughs> it was <Yes>. fantastic. <laughs> so,
1: and if I'd go to a neighbors and they had Cocoa Krispies and then mm. drinking the chocolate milk, that was another big was winner for me. So, anyway, I had
2: yeah. those.
1: Kim Coffren is uh, the director of. Uh, what you, the director of education and early education? <laughs> there you go. She's our it's chief house
2: expert, chief on it expert. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, so, Kim, and she's out of our Austin office. Uh, thank you, Kim, very much for all the work that you do for kids all over the state of Texas. And thanks for being on Growing Up in America.
6: Sounds good. Have a good
1: day, guys. Alrighty, Bye, take care. That's our show today. Uh, stay tuned. We have a lot more coming up here on KPFT. But for Claire and I, we do this each and every week
2: for, for children. children.
1: See you next time on Pacifica Radio.
3: With a dream, my cardigan Welcome to the land of fame, excess. Am I gonna fit in? Jumped in the camp, here I am for the first time Look to my right and I see the Hollywood sign This is all so crazy Everybody seems so famous My tummy's turning and I'm feeling kind of homesick Too much
1: Bruce Hart from Blues and Hi Fi, and you are listening to 90.1 FM KPFT Houston. Check the back
0: seat. Check the back seat. All right, come here. Check the back seat. Gets in your head, right? Good. Because every year, dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them. But with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot, fast, and can be deadly. So get it in your head. Check the backseat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. Not completing high school
2: is more of a social thing than it was an academic thing.
6: It's painful man. concert
5: number three We are the boy band We're five-